Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide into the DMs. We'll hook you up. Have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in. Links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. We've got a really fun episode that's different. That I, I had a blast talking to him. I could have talked to him for a lot longer. His name is Lars Jacob. He's a wing shooting instructor, like on the wing, the feather, not just clay birds, which was a really cool philosophy to learn about and hear about. He's also a super intelligent gun man. And so we talked a little bit about my, my stock of guns that I enjoy shooting and he just is super smart, super fun. And I I hope you enjoy the episode, but first do me a favor, head over to patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters links in the description, join the community. We've got every other month, happy hours, never before seen videos, early releases on video content for YouTube. And it's just a great community, plus it's showing support for the show. So if you enjoy the show, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer. Hop on over. Also, LoneDuckOutfitters.com, link in the description. Check it out. Uh, Pretty soon, whether it's before or after this show airs, we're going to have a new website with all totally revamped with some new gear. So check that out. We're really excited to be relaunching the website with even more products, even more, you know, Lone Duck gear, but just Anything you can think of, it's going to be awesome. And lastly, our force fetch course. That's me teaching you how to do it yourself. All the tools and tips and tricks on a bunch of different dogs, a bunch of different breeds. Links in the description. Click that. Follow along. And and I, I think it's going to really, really help you get your dog to the next level. Next up, 
from the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. Our, it's the food that fuels the truck alone duck. The older dogs are on the 30-20 blend, and the younger dogs are on the large breed puppy formula, which they should stay on for about a year, and then you can switch them over to the adult 30-20. Next up, Gunner Kennels. You know it, man's best kennel. Uh, right now, back at home, Kevin's dogs are riding in the bed of his truck in the Gunner Kennels, and to keep them warm, they've got the all-weather kit as well as the cold weather door. It's keeping the core body temperature of the dog inside the kennel, so the dog has to expend less energy staying warm in the colder temps. So when you're traveling down the road, going training, going duck hunting, going grouse hunting, make sure they're not only safe, but they're also toasty, toasty warm. Next up, shoot or shoot, baby. That Benzman. From Kent Cartridge, Kent on Instagram, man. Uh, I am excited, especially talking to Lars today about shooting instruction and how to be a better shot on grouse, woodcock, ducks, pheasant, geese, etc. I'm excited to practice and hone my craft so that next season, when there's a bird presented to me, I will be more consistent with my shooting. Kent cartridge and last but not least we'd like to announce that uh we've made a partnership with dt systems the e-collar company dt systems um this is a, a company that has approached us a while ago and we've been testing out their products their different line of e-collars along with their dummy launchers and you know pigeon traps that you know launch the pigeons out um, you know, our friends, Ethan and Kat at Standing Stone are huge supporters of DT and use everything under the sun that DT provides. We're going to be that for the retriever community. So we're testing products. We're working on revamping some of their products and we're, in, we're using their 1820 now while we're training. So it's a super nice company, super good people, great products. And we really appreciate them coming on board and being a supporter of the show, a supporter of our YouTube channel, which is, is going to continue to grow this year. So please head over to Instagram, check out DT systems, tell them that we sent you and be, uh, be in tune for more to come from DT and the Lone D. Let's get into the show. Lars Jacob, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And uh, do me a favor, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on. This is uh, a great, I love, I love talking about this stuff. Um, and uh, as, as far as uh, me, I've been just playing doing this for a very, very long time. I was very lucky to have a father who was quite the adventurer and loved his hunting and fishing, and uh, we spent a lot of time in the woods and on the water, and um, it, it got to the point where, you know, I decided that maybe this is what I know more than about anything else, so I decided to make it my business about, uh, you know, I started hunting and fishing five decades ago, but about three decades ago or a little more, uh, I started making it my profession. Very cool, and your profession is? Uh, mostly shooting instruction, uh, but I also uh, help with the uh, uh, introducing uh, people to live bird instruction and, and what kind of, you know, working behind dogs. I offer a, a course uh, at my shooting grounds where, because we have this new shooter who wants to go out and learn how to walk a pump, but wants to learn everything about why the bird wants that cover 
why this type of dog is better suited for this type of hunting and stuff like that. So I have a very good friend of mine, Glenn Simone, who owns Peaceable Hill Farm in Shoreham, Vermont, which is right in the fantastic Lake Champlain Valley. And um, so I will do live bird instruction behind the individual, showing them how not to feel rushed, show them how, how to represent or readdress themselves to the, the uh, unexpected flush. And uh, we'll, we'll break it up into, we'll start with his English setter and he learns this individual, learn what it's like to hunt behind a pointer. And then we take out the English cockers mm-hmm. and show him what it's like to hunt behind the flushing dog. Uh, and, cool. and some, and I do a little bit of that in waterfowl. Unfortunately, uh, my shooting grounds that I have done work done has changed and we don't quite, we're still working on an area where I can help out with the waterfowl shooter as far as introducing to the dog and also the methodology uh, for shooting waterfowl. That's super cool. So I'm assuming because you're up in Vermont, we're hunting woodcock and grouse. Yeah, I mean, I travel extensively all over the place. And and prior to uh, COVID and all that, I was traveling very extensively. I was taking groups of people to Argentina. We were going uh, over to the UK. In fact, just before the uh, uh, COVID, uh, which was my last UK shoot, um, we were over there in November for a fantastic driven bird shooting in Wales of partridge grouse and and what was fun is the occasional uh european woodcock which is a far different bird than our woodcock but uh here in the northeast yeah the grout rough grouse woodcock uh mostly puddle ducks um the the i'll be honest with you that vermont needs to do something about their duck season there there really isn't enough hardcores here to lobby we've got um about 10 days of woodies and teal and then we go absolutely blank until mid-december and right now vermont uh shuts down mid-december yeah uh, we, we really need a season a second half season that takes us into january now for this with this new uh we just our lakes just froze up just froze yeah. up and that's incredible yeah. we feel the same way in new york um our birds don't you know a, a good group of birds don't really start showing up until december and january we've right. just had such warm warm falls that you'll get your maybe resident birds and then after a week or so of hunting them they're they're scarce and then you don't get a new push until i mean sometimes even into january and then we're done january 3rd that's right yeah it's tough it is it is and then you know i'm I'm pushing for you know hopefully we'll get some more interest in this state where uh, we can split the because the, the hardcore uh, duck hunters in Vermont are all up on the north. They're all on the northern end of Champlain. They're right on the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. And right now the season still works for them somewhat. Uh, sure. So they need to get the southern zone to say, OK, we have our, we're going to have to s- split the seasons and separate it down here in the south. Absolutely. I don't want to give up that October season because it is great for woodies and teal. No question about it. Sure. What about talk to me? I, I, I have an English setter. Kevin's got an English setter um grouse and woodcock in central new york has become uh, just a a passion of ours uh, alongside waterfowl hunting and dog training he and i took a trip to michigan for grouse and woodcock so it's it's definitely something i'd love to hear perspective on you know i feel like most grouse don't even give you a chance to be patient and wait for your shot it's like bang (laughs) you know like oh man there it was i saw it for a flash yeah um so talk to me about how you're with someone and the dog and walking through the woods and teaching them about the cover teaching them about the birds and how they react to dogs and humans well real quickly i just want to say that uh, when it comes to dogs i pretty much stick to my comfort zone and what i grew up with 
my father was a hardcore waterfowler and uh, upland was secondary to that. And we had a place up in New Brunswick, Canada in the 70s and early 80s uh, on a Tavison Tack Bay. And uh, what's interesting about the Tavison Tack Bay, it's still the only place left in North America where you're allowed to use legally sink boxes. Uh, And I have a wonderful collection of, uh, you know, cast iron brant decoys that we used to put on the wings of those sink boxes. Absolute miserable way to hunt, but deadly. I mean, you're just, you're, you're below the level of water and you're right in the middle of your blocks and the brant and the big red leg uh, blacks and the, and the Canada's are literally coming right down on top of you. So I grew up with labs and I grew up using labs, even in my upland. And I found them to be very, very key in the grouse and woodcock woods um, for several reasons. First of all, um, more importantly than finding the live bird is finding the dead bird. And there's no other dog that hunts dead better than a lab as far as, I mean, it's for what I've had experience with far better than uh, setters, pointers, most dogs, even though this, this little black and white short hair I got now is a hell of a retriever. But he gets intimidated by cover. Labs don't get intimidated by cover. And they'll find that dead bird. They'll find it if it was crypt and it went into a hole in a stone wall. They'll find it if it gets right in the middle of some serious uh, uh, brambles and hawthorn. Um, so my comfort zone is around labs. And so I've always hunted grouse and woodcock with flushing dogs. The second advantage to that is the grouse, uh, when walking in on a point, uh, usually the, you know, your buddies get the better chance at the shot because they're out on the flank and you're walking in on the point and that bird, I don't know if it's because of, um, exhibitors like, you know, sharp shin hawks and other things, but they love to put a tree between you and them as quickly as possible. Absolutely yeah. as quickly as possible. And so, uh, with the flushing dog, with a lab or any other type of flushing dog that learns very quickly in labs do this, how to hook and how to pin. And then you start getting these, getting these birds that are quartering. And then the windows of opportunity on that bird are, are much, much bigger. Cool. I mean, I would 100% agree with you that the grouse knows how to get in between you and a tree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uncanny instinct for them to just pop out and be gone. And, and they're, they're just super challenging birds. And, and we hunt with the setters. So we're constantly, you know, figuring out where are my shooting lanes? You know, I, dogs on point here looking this way. If I go this way, I'm, I may be in such a thick situation that I won't be able to do anything. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to nab some, and then I've been lucky enough to see a lot fly away. Yeah. It's, uh, um, it's even become interesting with, uh, Woodcock, uh, suddenly Woodcock are running. I mean, yeah. Or you can call it running. I don't, it doesn't look like running, but <laughs> they are yeah. a lot more mobile on the ground than I can remember as, as a youngster growing up shooting woodcock where they set so incredibly tight forever and ever and ever. But now they're starting to be mobile on the ground, too. And it's almost that you have to readjust your pointer on woodcock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's always a readjust on grouse. But with, with woodcock, typically that never had to happen. Um But now, you know, you're readjusting your pointers or and like I said, in my case, I just love the. The fact that the labs just know how to pin them and get them in the air. Yeah. So for the Northeast, talk to me about habitat and times of the year uh, that you're finding these birds in these habitats. Well, again, it's been changing from year to year. It's a new learning. Uh, you know, I, 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 for many years, I thought I knew everything about these birds. And now we have different conditions that's changed it. Vermont doesn't have the cycles 
that we used to have. I mean, you have to get up into the, you know, in the northern tier of New York or the northern tier of Maine, where you still have traditional grouse cycles. But here, um, we have really, really uh, created an issue with our grouse population in many ways. Um, obviously, we don't have the habitat we used to. We have uh, 30 to 50 year growth. It's our common growth, and that's the most sterile woods you can possibly have. Though there is still some good uh, grouse cover, but not enough of it to give us a population of grouse that can withstand some of these um, disease issues of West Nile and uh, mites on the ticks and things of that nature. You know, if we had the population we had back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, then they would withstand these diseases and we still have plenty of birds. But right now, um, the cycles that we have uh, are based on, on nesting, on, on uh, conditions in the spring. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives us a good year or not. And then, so we don't have consistency. We don't have a, a cycle of several years where it's good. And then a cycle of several years where it's not due to the, you know, the birch catkins and the, and the popple, um, you know, and that type of sort of thing. So uh, it's, it's a whole new learning experience as far as the, um, the grouse are concerned. The woodcock is, uh, you know, darn well in the early season in October, where to find them. And you're going to have several days of them. Uh, and then it's waiting to see what kind of, you know, flights we have this year, this year, we had birds coming down in December and even early January, uh, long after our season. And, um, so we did the same, yeah. we were the same in New York. Yeah. They were not here during the season, no. not in numbers. No. So it's, it's constantly new learning, you know, you yeah. have to, this, this new, uh, the, these new weather conditions and these new habitats are forcing us to, to regroup and relearn. Sure. You know, one of the things that I admire a lot about uh, a good grouse and and woodcock, maybe not woodcock, but good grouse hunter and same with like a turkey hunter is the woodsmanship, the knowing what kind of trees and berries and, you know, things like that. So when I ask, like, where are you typically finding them? What are you looking for in the woods and in the in the covers that are like this is real grousey or? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the grouse is a very, very uh, high-energy bird and has to constantly feed, especially as it gets colder. And the food source has to get higher and higher in protein and fat as it gets colder. So it's, you know, in the in the warmer days, you're going to find them in the damper areas, and they can live off of alder leaves when it's warm. They get enough protein, enough fat out of that. Uh, as it gets colder, they're going to shift out and find those fattier foods, whether it's uh, a good year for uh, hawthorn apples or whether it's they that's a beech nut year uh, and they'll literally go from alders up to higher elevations and into the ledges and the beech nuts I mean, and then they're going to be everywhere in between um, as long as they also have a few roosting pines nearby um, but it changes with the temperature um, you're going to find them in the apple orchards you're going to find them in the alders in the beginning in the warmer weathers and then you got to move into the nuts and the the fattier foods I mean, you know, even when they get into apples, uh, you know, as well as I do, that really the only thing in the apple that's got any goodness to them is the seeds of the apple. The meat of the apple is just nothing more than candy. Uh, and that's the reason why you see those apples chewed up and a lot of the chunks of the apple are on the ground. They're growing for the seed because that's the fat. That's the protein. Um, and, you know, hedgerows full of grapes has always been that's actually been more of a uh, the past 20 years, I've, uh, it's been more of a uh, hunting grapes. Of course, that's also living in this lower elevation. I'm living at 600 feet elevation now, and I find them more in the grapes than I did when I was 
living up at the 2000 foot elevation where we never did find them in grapes. You found them in other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the, the, the habitat will change with the temperature. And that's mm-hmm. what you got to, that's what you got to look for. They don't what kind stay. of temperature range are you thinking of like, all right, it's 20 degrees. It's been 20 degrees for five days straight. Let's go to this coat cover. Yeah. No, when, once they start, once you start getting a 20, 20 degree as a high during the day, yeah, you got to be in the, the fattier, nuttier foods, uh, the higher proteins, the higher fats. But uh, um, if they, if it's have that that type of day, like in, in late October, where it's very cool in the morning, they got to feed in the morning when they first get off roost. But then all of a sudden it warms up and they're just going to go relax somewhere. They're going to go either collect some sun. They're going to sit uh, at the base of pines out of the sun if it's too hot or whatever. Uh, but they don't need to eat all day. But uh, when you get to that 20 degree mark, they got to eat all day. Yeah. Yeah. I just am picturing as you're talking, like the different covers that we hit. And and I think our, my dog, Andy is maybe six years old now. So, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago is when I kind of started learning grouse hunting. And the first three years was like, let's throw uh, something at the wall and see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. And as we're, learning the covers and learning the the sections of woods that we're hunting here i'm starting to pick up more and more and more of like where we're flushing them and what is around me and then you start searching for that stuff absolutely yeah absolutely i mean in the old days nowadays you can do it easier maybe with taking pictures or on the phone but you know we were dedicated at keeping our journals putting the weather temperature i mean where, where where did we find the grouse today and then putting down a temperature and, and conditions and stuff like that. I mean, that was that was a, a a almost a must back in the in the early days of hunting. I don't see enough people do that today. Is that something that you still do? No, I can't say that I do. But like I said, I'm not. I don't spend anywhere near the time in the woods for myself anymore. I spend the you know in the old days it was a ridiculous number of days. Now it's, you know, a handful and it's usually with the, one of my clients. I'm mostly, I'm mostly educating now, I'm mostly teaching. So the times in the woods have become <laughs> not as much as it, it used to be, unfortunately, sure. but I let's still talk, out there, but I don't keep, I don't keep the journals like I used to No. Let's talk a little bit about the, the job that you're doing, you know, what you're doing with these clients to help them become better wing shooters. Well, as I was saying before, what's, what's been real interesting uh, is this, new shooter that I'm working with. Um, in my game, I deal with, uh, very, very high end guns, very, very high end clientele. I mean, I, I sell six digit guns. Uh, I got guys who spend a ridiculous amount of money during the bird season traveling and making sure that they're having fun. And it wasn't my cup of tea, but it was where, you know, it's where the, where the money was. And these guys wanted to shoot high volume and a lot. And they wanted to look good. If they were going to buy a Holland Holland or a Purdy, they wanted to look good shooting. They want to make sure that they can knock birds down. So these are these are my typical clients uh, for many, many, many years. And then I would set them up for trips to the UK or high volume dove in in, the, in Argentina and stuff like that. Now we have a new shooter who's also got plenty of money in his pocket and could do that type of shooting, but really doesn't want to. They want they want to, they're more of a sponge. They want to learn. You know, we have a a different person today, and that's why, you know, podcasts like yours are so highly successful because people are into learning. And 
So now the, the, the client that comes to me wants to learn how to shoot the right, right methodology um, and also learn about why is the bird in that cover? Why, does it, why is that the better dog for that type of bird hunting? And, and so on and so forth. And a lot of guys now are coming to me saying, I want to buy, now you've got me this far, it's time for me to buy a dog and then I want you to show me how to use it. So I don't show them how to train their dog. What I'll do is I'll go out in the field and show them how to read their dog. Because that's nice. a good thing. They don't know how to read their dog. They don't understand how the dog hunts differently upwind as it does downwind and things of that nature and how to understand the dog and also make sure the dog understands that it's teamwork and that the dog isn't just out there for themselves. Um, so that's my new client. And, and it really brings me back to my roots and I'm really, really enjoying it. So uh, that's why I'm saying I don't spend as much time in the woods as I used to because I'm living vicariously through these guys and I'm very, and it's, it's, it's really, really a lot of fun teaching this new shooter. And cool. uh, I'm very excited about this new shooter. They want to justify the kill. They want to know how to dress the bird. I had guys that used to just turn their back on the bird piles and walk away. And now mm -hmm. we got people who want to uh, cook, know how to cook the bird, how to dress the bird, and prepare the bird. And uh, so that's all part of it. That's why I switched from Lars Jacob wing shooting as my primary to wild surroundings. Lars Jacob wing shooting still exists, and that's my primary uh, uh, probably incomes because of my instructions and gun fittings. Um, but wild surroundings takes it to the next level. It talks about recipes and it talks about uh, preparation and, you know, funny blogs and, and the whole bit. It's, it's very uh, cool. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. Very cool. And, you know, I, I'll just to give you a, a, uh, an idea of what's going on. When I first started coaching 30 plus years ago, my student was an older gentleman who came to me who wanted to, learn the right methodology for whether it was pass shooting on duck or dove, or whether it was uh, escaping targets like pheasant, grouse, woodcock, quail. And they didn't have to learn. Um, uh, they didn't have to learn safety. They didn't have to learn etiquette. That was something that was embedded into them because they grew up in a family of, of hunters. And usually when I was done with that particular student, they'd say, this was fantastic. Next time I'm going to bring my son. He would love this too. Now I have a, 35 to 55 year old individual who didn't grow up in that world and is just starting to learn how to shoot and they're seeing their buddies getting into it they want to do it and they come to me and they're not just learning the methodology but they're also learning the etiquette and the safety aspect of this mm -hmm. and when they're done they come to me and say this is great next time i'm going to bring my father that's so cool we, we, we lost that generation of shooter and that's why I'm very excited about this new uh, this new shooter. Though they need, there's more need for this education in the way we do it because they don't have the the upbringing that uh, I'm not sure if you guys had it in your family for generations, but I sure as heck did. You know? Yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was four years old shooting, learning uh, how to shoot a 22. You know, right. popping balloons and right. shooting at milk jugs and watch the water pour out. Exactly. Um, and how to be safe around them. And it wasn't a toy. And so maybe a 35 or 40 year old, you know, from Boston, who's never held a gun, shot a gun, seen a gun. This is amazing. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it's Very all cool. good stuff. It's all so one good. of the things before we got on the podcast that you, you started speaking to was the difference between clay bird shooting and shooting on the wing and instructing is different. And, can you kind of dive deep into that and then how you educate these people? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, first of all, clay shooting is, is it, it, 
what a clay shooter does is he sees a presentation. It's not unpredictable. All right. So he can make a plan and then he applies that plan. So it's using the, basically the analytical mind. It will, they'll, they'll take a presentation and break it up into sections. It's going to be the, the focal point, the hold point, the break point. And they understand their foot position and how they're going to unwind on a bird as opposed to wind on a bird. It's all predictable. And you have total control over it. The bird doesn't fly until you call pull. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 uh, they'll even visualize that break in their, hunt, in their head three or four times before they actually call pull. The bird hunter doesn't have that ability. He has to analyze or he has to read that target, so to speak, while it's in the air. So it's more of having a belief in your instinctive thought process, okay? Not letting the analytical mind interfere, okay? Have total belief, have total faith. When it all comes together, you squeeze the trigger, win or lose. And the chances are the wins become more and more common. If you let that conscious mind jump in then all of a sudden the loses become more common so that's the first thing you got to understand that they have to really believe in their instincts this is like hitting a baseball okay that baseball batter has got to analyze that pitch at 99 miles an hour and which corner of the box it's going to come through in a very quick period of time we have that ability there isn't a bird out there that flies quicker than our instinctive thought process works so we got to combine that with uh proper mechanics now the mechanics is something that's easy to learn it just takes time because it is muscle whereas the focus and the belief in the instinctive thought process is not that's what you have to constantly remind yourself of but the the wing shooting methodology is one of very very efficient reaction to the underpredictable presentation there's a lot more body and gun movement and wing shooting than there is in clay shooting the clay shooter now you're seeing these barrels getting longer and longer and longer in clay shooting and the reason is is they're minimizing their movement more and more and more to the point where it's very very small amount of movement so if you have a very small amount of movement you don't have muscle speed that's going to give you the forward allowance on the target that's needed so they have to perceive a lead they have to picture a lead so it's all geometry when the the longer the barrel is it shortens that lead perception. If I take a 28-inch barrel on a sporting place course and it's throwing a 45-yard hard-crossing target, I'm probably going to have to see six or eight feet in front of that bird to break it. I can take that same presentation, bring out my 32-inch barrel gun, and I'm going to cut that lead perception in half, all because of geometry. So that's the reason why you're seeing these longer barrels in the clays world. All right. So in the bird hunting world, we have to use more of a of a body movement and, and muzzle speed to give us a forward allowance. There's less awareness of the gun barrel than there is for the clay shooter. Uh, we have a lot to do, but it's all done at the same time. That's the thing. We don't move in, in, in uh, segments. We don't mount the gun and then go try to acquire the target. First, right. you acquire the target, and you maintain a connection to that target, particularly with a hand on the forestock, because a hand on the forestock is what relays that information to your instinctive mind. All right. So that by the time you hit your cheek, you know everything about that grouse, that woodcock, that quail. You don't don't need to then figure them out. You already know everything about them. So all you do is accelerate and squeeze the trigger because wing shooting is a game of acceleration, not deceleration. Clays is more of a game of literally spot shooting. Very cool. Very, very, very different. So what are some of the mechanics that you will work on with these folks? 
Um, I teach a very English philosophy, so it's an extremely comfortable, somewhat upright stance. You know, what I say is make it look more like an art than a sport. Uh, but it is a sport. So enough of a sport where you do have to play it off your toes, like any other sport you've ever played, you lose if you're on your heels. Mm -hmm. So there's that small extension, but it's very, very important for them to understand that whatever movement you make needs to be very small and compact because it gets bigger downrange. So if you make big movements at the body, which you see a lot of shooters do self-taught shooters do, you're going to see huge movements downrange. And typically that lends itself to a miss. So you got to understand that making, you know, the way I tell people is when you sight in that 22 with iron sights and you move that rear sight, how little do you have to move that rear sight to make it a big difference at, at 35, 40, 55 yards, right? right? It, it's very little movement makes inches and inches of difference downrange. And it's the same thing at the body when you're shotgunning. If I tell them as an instructor, this is the correction I want you to make, but don't overcompensate. Take it in very small, minute amounts and you're going to see big differences downrange. Very difficult for the wing shooter to understand that the correction that they made is actually working because it's black and white. The target breaks or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So there's so many other sports out there that give you feedback. If, you, if you're fly casting, okay, and you let go of that line too soon and it piles up in front of you, you realize that's a lousy cast. And then the instructor says, well, you need to let that rod get in front of you and stop. And when, just as it recovers from the bend, that's when you release that line. And he applies it, and he's still not quite exact, but it did get a better cast. He can see progression there. He can see feedback. And in shotgunning, it's very, very difficult. If I have someone that gets in front of me, and he misses a target, and I make a suggestion, and then we throw the target again, and he applies that, but he still misses the target, I say, much, much better. And he says he doesn't understand because they were both misses. So in wing shooting, the, the, the learning process isn't going to be you break two out of 10 and then you break four out of 10 and then six out of 10, then finally eight or 10 out of 10. You're going to break two out of 10, two out of 10, two out of 10, and then finally you're going to break eight out of 10. The instructor sees the four and the six. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, so that's, that's probably the reason why for years and years and years, nobody thought that shotgunning could be taught like any other sport, but it can, it can be taught and learned as Robert Churchill said. Um, but the reason why that thought that it couldn't be is because of the lack of feedback that the student was getting. Sure. I've got to find it difficult due to bird numbers that like, if, if you, if we had you come out and hunt with me and Kevin, it'd be like, well, we, we heard three flushes. We saw two and what a great day in the field, right? Like you might not even have squeezed the trigger. Um, but, is it different up where you are, where you, you do get the ability and the chance to get more reps on the grouse with these folks? Oh, no, no, no. You can't. Unfortunately, we can't use wild birds that much for, for learning experience. Okay. I mean, the only time that I could actually do that where you have consistent presentation uh, on wild birds would be Argentina. I mean, yeah, the, right. the high volume of wild birds up here. So this is where, you know, I will say that I'm all for pheasantries. Uh, I'm not all form where it's, uh, a group of guys that just go there and not wanted to better themselves, but just have a incredibly high volume amount of fun for just a couple of hours and then go back to the city. I'm talking about for the learning experience, we need pheasantries these days to Is get that a tower shoot or a no, 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 walk, walk, walk up hunting, walk okay. up hunting on, 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 on subsidized birds, birds that have been released in the field. Gotcha. The pheasants, things like that. 
And uh, like I said, I do most of my instruction is with I, I have a clays course at my shooting grounds, but the presentations don't have these bizarre sporting clays presentations that you would never see in the wild. They're all to represent classic bird hunting scenarios. And I teach people bird hunting methodology on those clay targets. I mean, I'm the type of person that if they break a target and I said, yeah, you broke it, but you didn't break it the way I wanted to break it because that you, you already knew where that bird was going. All right. So let's really work on this target. Like you don't know. And then you, then you go into the unpredictable presentations of throwing different traps or having, you know, I have a setup with several wobble traps, but then the field is your next bet, but you got to have enough birds to make it worthwhile. They learn in the field. It isn't just so much how they're going to then take what I taught them on the, in the clays course or on, on my clay instructional area and then apply it in the field. It's also some other things, uh, readdressing the bird. I mean, how many times is somebody when the bird flushes, they are immediately running into their gun mount and winding themselves up because it was a hooked bird, like a corkscrew going into the ground and they look like they're about to fall over. And then they take the shot and miss. They don't realize that there's this tremendous ability to readdress the bird. As that bird flushes, you can take the time as long as the steps that you make or the way you dance with the bird with your feet, as long as you keep your stance close and everything that you make for a movement is within inside the width of your shoulders, you can easily come to a ready position to dress that bird, and you'll have plenty of time to take that bird. Grouse, because of its habitat, might be the most difficult to do that, but it can hmm. be done. I teach cool. a Churchill footwork methodology that does help with the grouse, but with pheasant, you can actually take minute little steps and stay within your little hula hoop, so to speak, so you don't lose your balance, you don't get off your foundation, and then apply a move mount shoot sequence where the instinctive mind is absorbing that information because of the forehand on the stock is pointing at the bird while you're mounting the gun. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that I teach in the field is how, how to readdress birds, how to reposition themselves to give them the better advantage. Don't think that all birds are going to turn you into a corkscrew. It isn't, that isn't the way it works. You know, the truth of the matter is, is a grouse, if it was, if it lived in the same terrain as a pheasant, you could smoke them all day long. Because right. their top speed is not even close to a pheasant or not even close to a bobwhite quail, wild bobwhite quail. Right. Uh, but because of their habitat, it makes them extreme and their wariness. That's what makes them a difficult bird. Yeah. They're one of my favorites. I mean, I, I know I said it earlier, but like just you saying that just gets me fired up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, we've done a, plenty of. In New York State, they release pheasants on state land. Yeah. And one of my favorite things to do when I got in this game was take my, he's now 13 uh, year old lab. And after work, he and I would go push a field and shoot our limit of pheasants and go home at dark. And I find that that, I don't want to say like it's not as fun for me anymore, but the challenge of the grouse. And the uh, excitement of the the non-volume, right? Like the, it's kind of weird to put it into terms, but if you get a few points, if you see a few birds, if you get to pull the trigger, that's a great day. If you get a bird or two birds or three birds, you're like, I'm on fire. And this was the greatest day of the season. Yeah. Um, where the pheasants, you know, I would love to go and do it with my dad and Kevin or a couple buddies and, but the challenge of it isn't there as much, I guess. But I've also yeah. not been to like the Dakotas. Right. Well, yeah, that's a completely different bird. That's for sure. 
and um, it, it applies a little bit of a different methodology. When when we shoot when we shoot grouse and woodcock, basically, as I we are using uh, the Robert Churchill instinctive method in its purest form. You're basically you're, when you acquire the grouse with your eyes, and then you connect to the grouse with your left hand, regardless if there's trees or not. You 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 the, the mindset is there are no trees. I wrote an article about that. There are no trees. You look through the woods, as the elk hunters would say. Mm-hmm. and you're moving in finding that line the focus is entirely on the bird your peripheral vision your subconscious vision is awareness of the trees but when you just before you hit the cheek you accelerate the gun to slightly in front of that bird and squeeze the trigger that's that's churchill instinctive in its purest form when you're out in the dakotas and you're shooting pheasant the beginning uh, of the sequence is the same but because of the distance of that pheasant and the speed of that pheasant we have to create forward allowance with a little bit more acceleration. So that's when we apply uh, a, a real refined swing through technique called butt belly beak bang. That's when you get on the butt end of that bird. So when you when you're you're moving in harmony with that bird while you're coming to your cheek, and as soon as you hit your cheek, you accelerate through the butt belly beak and then force yourself to get in front of that bird and squeeze your trigger. So you're creating that acceleration needed for pheasant, but at the same time, you're finding the line that the pheasant is on. And that is more difficult to find than forward allowance because what you're throwing out there as far as a pattern is less forgiving up and down to a line of a target than it is whether you're in front. You can be in front many different places and still kill that bird. But your your diameter of your pattern is less forgiving of not finding the line. So if you just poke out in front, you may have found the perfect forward allowance, a perfect lead on that bird, but still miss it because you didn't find the path that it was taking. And that's, that's, that's pheasant hunting in the Dakotas. Um, so it's all these methodologies are based on instinct, uh, instinctive, but then, you know, you, you apply them what you need. The duck hunter, the driven bird shooter is going to apply more of a pull away technique. And those guys also are ones where I really work on the shoulders because people don't realize that uh, on a quartering bird that you would typically see in a driven scenario or in a duck hunting scenario or duck hunting, a uh, duff hunting scenario um, you, the, the muzzle follows the line between shoulder point to shoulder point. That's the swing line. And that swing line has, has to match the line that the bird is flying on. So learning how to drop, if it's a, if it's a quartering bird that's coming at you right to left, you got to learn to drop that right shoulder. As you start, your move mount sequence. If it's coming quartering left to right, then you got to drop the left shoulder as you do your move mount sequence. You know, these, these are, that's, that allows you to find the path that the bird is on. When it's a type of bird like a duck, a dove, or, or driven bird that requires considerable forward allowance. So cool. I would like to, uh, we need to come up and hang out with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, another passion of mine is talking guns. Um, so I'll kind of give you my, what, what I've got just so, you know, we're on the same page. Sure. Uh, and, and I'd like to hear some of your relics um that you enjoy so uh, a gift that has never been shot is a charles daly 10 gauge damascus barrel side by side that was my great grandfather's um was it prussian was it uh german or prussian i don't know the answer i have the paperwork for it so i'd have to look at it again um but it's just Uh, a beautiful pictures of the proof marks would show it to me if you had you know but charles daly was an importer in boston Mm -hmm in the late 1880s is when he started and cool. his first guns that he brought in were, uh, you know, Prussian guns. Cause it's before world war one and some, the, the Linder and a few other companies in Prussia that made some of the most spectacular guns at that time, 
highly sought after collectibles today since uh, that era was short-lived because of World War I. Uh, and then um, Charles Daly was long gone after that, but then he started, you know, the, the, the importing company then started bringing in Italian guns, English guns, Japanese guns over the years, and, and they're all very, very nice. But I got a feeling when you're talking about that era of gun and a 10 gauge, I got a feeling that that could be German or, or uh, Prussian or something of that nature. Yeah. I'll have to take a picture of it and send it to you. It's a beautiful gun and just a great keepsake for our family. Mm-hmm. Um, I was gifted by a client, a 16 gauge Ithaca from the fifties that uh, it's like a three barrel set. So wow, 26 inch, 28 inch and 32 two or 30 something to that effect and that's been my grouse gun uh for the last two seasons been very fun nice gun yep and then amongst a bunch of others but then my my go-to gun is a browning satori 12 gauge that's dented dinged bent (laughs) bent rib scratched up and that's what i duck hunt goose hunt really i'll take that into the grouse woods too just because i i love it and swing it well um but that's and I, like i said i've got a few others but those are the ones that have my heart yeah it, the uh the companies what, what's interesting about manufacturers is they all had a uh, different philosophy of who mr average was so browning always had a tendency to build guns with more drop at the comb and the heel than some other companies. Beretta keeps their guns relatively flat. Um, so when I do fittings and it isn't somebody who's going to have a bespoke gun made for them, or uh, maybe not really thinking about having their stock altered, but just trying to get an idea of what their dimensions should be. Um, I, I, what I do is I say, listen, only go to a, 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 a store gunroom store that has the labels on that actually talks about the dimensions of the stock mm-hmm. and after i fit them i say here are your dimensions so if you can find something as close to these you're going to be a, a fine shot and you'll learn proper technique because the dimensions will allow that to happen and so a lot of times after i fit somebody i'll say to them after the fitting i say you would do well with a browning or you would do well with a Beretta because mm-hmm. your your dimensions came out closer to what Beretta thinks is what Mr. Average is, or this guy's dimensions came out closer to what uh, Browning thinks Mr. Average is. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of an interesting. So typically when you find that gun that you shoot well, it's typically because it is closest to your dimensions. It just makes the most sense to your eyes. Yeah. Uh, gun fitting is probably more important for the, the wing shooter than it is any other shooter uh, because of the fact that we have to move efficiently in any direction that the bird might take us so we have a tendency to stand more square and our head more upright so that we can fully acquire the target fully acquire the bird um so a proper fit gun is uh it can can really be beneficial that that said it's only beneficial if you apply proper technique okay if you are fitted for a a gun and you build that gun to those dimensions but you haven't learned proper technique then you're still going to be a lousy shot just with a well-fitted gun so it's the combination of all these that make you the best shot you can possibly be so that that, that's where the browning comes in so that the browning is better for someone that has a higher head carriage because they are typically one and five eighths to comb two and three eighths at the heel or two and a half to heel 
whereas Breda might be one and three eighths at the comb and two and eighth at the heel. So it, it's uh, that that has a lot to do with it. So when we do fittings, it isn't just based around uh, uh, the physical uh, dimensions. In other words, uh, distance from pupil to cheekbone, distance from earlobe to shoulder, uh, slope of shoulder, square shoulder, all, all these things come into the, the play physically of how you fit, just like you would looking for your shirt or your jacket. But also takes into consideration your eyes. We talk about eye dominance. And uh, obviously, if possible, it's always best to shoot with both eyes open because it gives you field of vision and depth perception. But there's some people that uh, maybe can't. There's a lot of very good one-eyed shots out there. But it isn't just everyone has a, a misconception that eye dominance is either it's going to be this eye, the right eye, or the left eye. There's many places in between that the two lines of sight can converge. And many times I'll do a fitting for a bird hunter, and he comes to me and I say, okay, let's go through this eye dominance test. And his two lines of sight are converging closer to the bridge of the nose than it is in front of one eye. And uh, in which case, I can actually fit a stock to that. I can make it so it lines up. Your eye may not be center of the rib, but your lines of sight where the two come together are center of rib. So when I find someone like that, I, I'll tell them right out straight. I says, I bet you have a ridiculously hard time with that absolute straightaway bird. Mm-hmm. That bird, for some reason, you just think you can't seem to hit that straightaway bird. You smoke the crossing and quartering birds. And they say, yeah, that's exactly right. And that all has to do with that al- visual alignment. So that's all part of the gun fitting process as well. That's unbelievable. So since Kevin can't hit a bird at all, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. He had a, he had a, uh, I was uh, lighting a marinade, baby. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Sorry, right. you had a grin on your face. I knew it was coming. <laughs> what I find so interesting, Lars, is that it's there's such a deep science to it where you you could just go out and go for a walk in the woods and stumble upon a bird and take a crack and and go out bird hunting. But you can also fall in love with it and learn about what the bird is eating and the temperature and where it is in that kind of a day and what type of gun you're holding and why and how your face dimensions are and all these different things. There's so many different layers to it it's uh it's it's exciting and it's cool it's, that it's such an expertise yeah i i'm thorough i haven't even said anything in this whole show i've just been enjoying listening to you talk about it because i think it's really interesting to hear someone who has as much experience as you do with this uh that i, I you know i don't know if i'll ever get to that point but it's it's incredible uh you know i'll be honest with you i'll be very fortunate that i i actually when I decided to make this uh, more of my profession and I went to Orvis, which is in my backyard. And I, I grew up as an Orvis brat, you know, it was just down the road. So I knew the Perkins family very well. I bought their stuff and uh, you know, the whole bit. Um, and, it, and I started working for them in uh, oh, right around 1990 or so ended up becoming their chief fitter, their chief instructor and managing their, their custom gun program. Um, what that did for me is, is uh, it isn't how many years that you maybe have done this, because there's many other people that have been in this business for a long period of time, but maybe don't have the opportunity to have seen as many students in front of them, mm-hmm. you know, per year. I have. Orbis, when I first started Orbis, there wasn't too many other of uh, these uh, uh, school-type schools around, uh, wing-shooting schools around. And, um, I, you know, I was getting three, 400 people a year in front of me. Uh, and that's, that, that's a lot of seeing experience because of the truth of the matter is, is that 
you can't rely on a textbook for teaching someone how to shoot or fitting because there's so many quirks and nuances with people that you can't fit them. There isn't enough textbooks out there to fit them. And so you got to take it from experience. You know, if I have someone shooting high and left on or high on a pattern plate when I'm doing a gun fitting, and yet when I look down the barrel, uh, the pupil is literally right on top of the rib. It's not sticking over the top of the rib, which is what typically would make that point of impact be high. That's because that individual is not doing what textbook says. Textbook says if your pupil's too high, the muzzle's coming up to your pupil, but the breech of the gun is below. So now you have a line of sight that's flat, but a gun barrel that's angled up. And mm-hmm. you're going to shoot over the top of the bird. Some people don't have the muzzle come up to their eye. Okay. Some people will run always the gun parallel. Right. So I can actually have a guy shooting high on, on the uh, point of impact on the pattern plate and another guy shooting low on the point of, uh, 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 point of impact on the pattern plate. But the fix is the same because they have two different – one is one is a textbook situation. The other one's a quirk that you've rarely ever seen before. So mm-hmm. it, it takes experience, lots and lots of different people because – there is a lot of variety out there with, with people in their their eyes, their their athleticism, their head carriage, their upper body strength. All of this also comes into play uh, sure. when when teaching and fitting. Let's talk about uh, your guns a little bit. Like, what what do you like to carry? What's your go to gun if if we're going out into the field to have a good fun day? What are you taking? It's always a side by side. It will always be a side by side. Only because that they are not just little sexy little guns that you think what a, a proper field gun should be, and and don't get me wrong, I love shooting all kinds of guns. All right, and uh, my actually my second favorite are pumps because the pump was the American classic as far as I'm concerned. The side by side is the English or the UK classic, and um, but uh, the the other thing is that there is a lot of. Uh, um, attributes of the side-by-side that lend itself to upland bird hunting and one is obviously ease of carry they're much lighter than this in the same gauge as their over and under counterpart um and they also align when you're shooting instinctively you're basically acquiring the bird and throwing your two hands up into your line of sight so if you utilize a side-by-side that has a straight hand stock and a splinter forend you have a configuration that keeps those hands in alignment. The barrels are very, very close to the palm of your hand. So it has better pointability than other, any other configuration because it goes in play with the fact that you're running, throwing those two hands into your line of sight. Whereas uh, over and unders push the barrels up out of your hand with those bigger, bigger forends and the pistol grips stagger the hands. So they don't have the same pointability in my mind. Okay. They don't have the, the same uh, responsiveness. Okay. Uh, you want in the field, you want a gun that points quick and responds quick to what you see. A clay shooter, on the other hand, wants, or even maybe a waterfowl hunter because of today's non-toxic loads that are belting out at 1,450 or 1,550 feet per second. You need to tame that load. So, the, the, you know, these high volume, uh, big gig shooters want that pistol grip to so that the wrist is straight behind the hand instead of cocked which allows you to absorb recoil as well as gives you better control over the gun but they don't need a pointability gun they don't need a responsive gun because they already know where the target is going it's a plan they apply it so 
all of the, all of the guns have reasons and uh, for being and have their attributes. But being an upland bird shooter, uh, there's no question that the side by side is probably the best pointing gun that uh, that that there is. <laughs> We've got a cat in the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't control the animals. <laughs> Jen's trying to deal with the dogs and the cat right at the moment. That's all right. Sorry about that. What? So, what is the gun? What like what make, model, gauge? Well, and... I'm uh, you know okay. I'm a little bit of a snob here. Um, there was no guns better built than the ones built pre-war, 1920s, 1930s. And the next better guns that were ever built were probably in the uh, late 1880s to about 1910. Those were the very, very best decades of uh, gun making. There was, there was no better. Um, everything was done in-house. Um, everything was done, you know, it was, it was during a time where I want the best, where today is I want the best, but I want it tomorrow. You know, it's a whole different attitude. Um, and we don't have, they didn't have CNC. It was, a, you know, hand fitting and everything like that hand engraving i mean to be honest with you there's some guns uh for sale out there today made in the uk that you can pick up for very little money i mean you can pick up uh many different 12 bores uh out there for 1500 1400 dollars that were made in the 1920s or 1930s that if you were to make them the same way they were made today would be five digit guns they'd be 15 20 thousand dollar guns because they can't make them today like that anymore with that same attention to detail. And what I mean by attention to detail, it's not just what you see on the outside. In the, the older vintage guns, um, pre-war, when you looked at the, uh, took them apart to look at the proof marks in the barrel flats, the, typically the barrel if it was choked would just say choke. And if the other barrel didn't say choke at all, that means there was probably, there was uh, no more than, than uh, it was, there was less than 10 thousands constriction. Okay. And what they did is they just went out, they didn't call the uh, improved, modified, modified, full and all this stuff. They went out to a, a pattern board and they shot and then they honed and then they shot and then they honed till they got the pattern that they wanted at the distance they wanted. And if it had more than 10,000 constriction, then there would be stamp choke at the proof house. If it was less, it wouldn't be. And so that didn't matter with the, those type of chokes. These guns patterned magnificently the, 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 in a tighter choke gun, the, the, the forcing cones going into the choke constriction would start six, seven, eight inches back from the muzzle. So it was a small, gradual squeeze of the shot. These guns just plain outperformed. And um, then we, unfortunately, we destroyed our guns because the American mentality was, if I miss something, I need a bigger gun. And we started loading these guns with huge charges, Okay. And now that we had to lawyer proof these guns, we have to say, okay, this guy might put a ounce and three quarter load in this gun. So we have to know that it can withstand twice that. Mm -hmm. All right. So to withstand twice that we have to build these wall thicknesses at 40, 45 thousands at the, at the thinnest on a barrel. Whereas back then they were making them 19 thousands. Okay. No one could strike barrels better than the Brits and, and the, actually the very best guns are the Scottish guns of that era. But, um, so we, we've, we've turned our guns into boat anchors here. We had these beautiful, lively little guns that pointed with extreme speed and accuracy. And we destroyed them by making them want to shoot bigger loads. When someone comes up to me, this is a pet peeve of mine, as you can tell, right? When someone comes up to me and they say, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm, I was killing pheasants stone dead in the air at 40 yards with my 28 gauge. I said, really, what was the load you're using? Oh, I said, I'm using these, these, 
1,300 feet per second, one ounce loads from Fiocchi. I said, you're not shooting a 28 gauge. It's the charge that makes the gauge. It's the shell. It's the load. You're shooting a, if you're shooting a one ounce load in a 28 gauge, you're actually shooting a 16 gauge gun through a 550 thousandths bore diameter. And yet that one ounce load performs so much better in a 662 thousandths bore diameter, which is a 16 gauge gun. So why do that? If you need to right. shoot a one ounce load, you shoot a 16 gauge. The reason why you're shooting a 28 gauge is because you want the gun that performs absolute best with a three quarter ounce load or less. All these shotguns um, will shoot at their top load and lower extremely well, but at their top load and higher, then you start losing uh, pattern ability. You start creating strings. You start creating gaps, holes. And, you know, I always tell people, if you take a handful of small pebbles and you wing them as hard as you can, they disperse immediately. But if you take that same small handful of pebbles and just gently toss them, they all stay together. And that's what yeah. we've been doing to our shotgun shells. The, the English and the Scots were killing pheasants stone dead in the air with three quarter ounce loads and a two inch, 12 gauge can going at 1,050 for generations. Okay, we didn't have to make it hotter, faster and more lethal. That's crazy and makes a ton of sense. So the Scottish guns, I'm going to tell you that, you know, like John Dixon and son and, and uh, um, Alex Henry and Daniel Frazier and Charles Ingram, all these wonderful, wonderful Scottish makers during the twenties and thirties by far were the best guns ever made. Is that what you carry in the field? As much as I can. Unfortunately, I'm not one that can have a boatload of guns. Sure. I'm one of those collectors that, shoots one and then sells it and then finds another one to shoot. So, <laughs> so that's yeah. cool though. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I would uh, like to invite you to tell everyone where they can find you if they want to take a course and uh, maybe Kevin and I will hit you up this summer and, and take a lesson because so, you're not that far from us. That's like, no, you're not. It's like three and a half hours, four hours, yeah. maybe. Yeah. No, you're not at all. Yeah. And uh, it's real pretty up there in the Champlain Valley too. It's gorgeous. Um, yeah, no, my uh, my website, there's two of them. There's wildsurroundings.com, and then you can also go larsjacob.com, and both of them will actually take you. Larsjacob.com will take you to the Lars Jacob wing shooting page of my Wild Surroundings website, or in general. And uh, then, of course, it's at Wild Surroundings on Facebook, at Wild Surroundings on Instagram. And uh, if you Google Lars Jacob, uh, you'll see me for several pages. So, um not not too difficult to find very cool well we'll send uh, in the description of the podcast will be links to your pages so that everyone makes it easier on them to find you um and i know that you said that you travel around and give courses all over the place too but you know where in vermont are you again yeah uh, the my shooting grounds is in shore vermont it's at peaceable hill farm in shore vermont and you can find peaceable hill farm at peaceablehill.com um, and it's a real nice, beautiful little pheasantry, uh, where I have my instructional station with clays, but also we have, uh, we plant for, uh, sorghum and corn and switchgrass. And we, we, uh, uh, have a wonderful, wonderful, some wonderful pheasant hunting. I do do drivens up there. I do continentals up there, but I also do my live bird instruction out in the field. Uh, we have a good stable of dogs, uh, everything from, <laughs> Brocco Italianos to English setters. The, the Brocco cool. Italiano seems to be the new thing these days. It does. <laughs> it does. And, um, but it's in Shorn, Vermont, in the Lake Champlain Valley. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It was a pleasure getting to know you and learn from you. And I hope uh, that you enjoyed it as well. Thank you oh, so absolutely. much. Oh, absolutely. A lot of fun, guys. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you. Hey, patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.